If you want to take out your Bibles, um, and you can open to Romans 5 and put your thumb in there if you'd like. It's going to be a little bit before we get there, so you may want to wait as well. But that's where we're we're headed today as our primary text. Um, Last week, we introduced this new series, Jesus, the True and Better. And today we're looking at uh, Jesus is the True and Better Adam. And um, this, this past week, um, one of you kindly sent me an email, because as I introduced this series, uh, an individual had uh, recently purchased a book that kind of described some of these things that I'm talking about, and so they sent me some of it to, to look over, which was great. And in, in the midst of that, there is a wonderful quote by St. Augustine, which I'm very happy to have. And so I say extra credit to this person, and if you ever help me with my sermon, extra credit to you as well. But here is what Augustine had to say that is kind of um, in view of this series, Jesus the True and Better. He said, the New Testament is in the Old concealed. The Old Testament is in the New revealed. And this is a way that St. Augustine sort of describes how we are to think about, again, the left side of our Bible in comparison to the right and how they relate to one another, how they work together. In fact, it's not so much two sides as it is one story. One great story. So today we're kind of moving on in the series, Jesus the True and Better. And if you weren't here last week, I would really encourage you to go back uh, and maybe listen to uh, last week's message, its introduction to this series, so you can understand what we're doing here. Um, And you can go directly to our website to get that. If you haven't found our YouTube channel yet, you can find that. Uh, We've got it on Spotify and, and iTunes. Everything's free. Nobody gets anything from it, but just lots of places we're trying to... Uh, disseminate our teaching. Um, And last week, what I did was I acknowledged that the left side of our Bible, you know, for many of us, is kind of like a scary neighborhood. You know, we're not sure about what we find there. There's some scenes, there's some imagery, there's some stories, there's some things that are kind of eye-opening, and we're not real sure what that has to do with us. Is this telling us what to do? Is this prescriptive, or is it just descriptive? Does this have bearing on our life today, or is it something that's outmoded? What do we do with this left side of our Bible? And I sort of showed how one of the common mistakes we make with this is sometimes treating some of these biblical stories in the Old Testament in particular as we kind of read them like Grimm's fairy tales. They're, they're a story with a moral. And that's not really the way that we are to read them. This is, in fact, what Jesus sort of corrects in the New Testament. In John chapter 5 and Luke 24, he declares to two different audiences, one and a group of angry critics, and then the, sorry, you guys are the angry critics just now, angry critics, and (laughs) other to his two disciples, um, on the road to Emmaus, about how we are to, to read the Old Testament, the scripture that he had, and he says it all points to him. It all points to him. So in John 5, he says this to the critics. He says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that speak of me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Later on in that same discussion, he wags the finger and says, The word of God does not dwell in you, revealing that it's possible to know the text but to not know the person of the text. And then later on after his resurrection, He is talking with two disciples, one named Cleopas and another, and they're on the road to Emmaus. And it says that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, that's left side, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. It points to him. 
And they have this wonderful com uh, comment between them. Were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us? So we recognized last week that the left side is to be read, the Old Testament is to be read in such a way that we see it pointing to Jesus. Uh, today we look at our first Old Testament figure, uh, Adam, whom the Bible presents uh, as the first man, the first human of God's creation. And we're going to take some time to look at who God made him to be, how he failed, the implications of that failure, and then how Jesus is the true and better Adam. Um, and in your insert, I've got something right at the top for those of you who are Cliff's Notes learners. You know, give me the top line. I'll sort the rest out myself. Here's, here's your top line for the sermon today. By his sin, Adam wrecked the world. But in his sacrifice, Jesus fixes it. Okay, that's, that's the sermon and basically in a sentence. And, and so in this way, Jesus is the true and better Adam repairing what Adam has broken. Now, I'll tell you that this description of Jesus is the true and better Adam, you know, this is not my own. This is not of my making. Uh, it's not even of Tim Keller's making. Uh, Tim Keller got it from the Apostle Paul. It's his. It's his phrase, his description. And we'll see two instances of it. The first one quickly, in 1 Corinthians 15, here Paul is talking about uh, our bodies, these these earthly tents, as he calls them, or tabernacles that we live in temporarily, thankfully, because this one's wearing out on me. And I'm glad that that's not going to be this one forever. And he goes on to talk about that we'll be given a new body, or as I like to call them, a body to die for, right? That's what's coming. And so this is the conversation that Paul is having with uh, the Corinthians here. And, and in that, he kind of he shows how this has come about, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. And so Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. And in doing this, he presents Adam as a type of Christ, an earthly type. And in that, Jesus fills up or completes what Adam was supposed to do. Now, let me explain that word type, because for some of you, that might be a little concerning or problematic. Uh, but, but typology is a way that New Testament authors and writers, human authors, viewed or understood the Old Testament. Uh, at its heart, typology looks to see a consistency or a symmetry of God's work in the world. It looks to see a steady narrative arc. And so oftentimes, what we, we find is sort of this initial figure or this initial feature in the Old Testament, uh, something like the sacrificial system. But then we see how it kind of gets blown up or expanded or filled in in the New Testament, such as Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. We find a greater and fuller representation of the initial reference. Um, there's a New Testament scholar by the name of uh, Douglas Moo, and uh, he defines it this way. I think this was a very good definition. He says, New Testament persons events, and institutions will sometimes fill up Old Testament persons, events, and institutions by repeating at a deeper or more climactic level that which was true in the original situation. And so that's kind of how a New Testament scholar helps us to look back and see the old and see what, what God is doing with the Old Testament, the left side of our Bible. 
I think it's also uh, worth noticing that most of the time, the Old Testament writers are not necessarily aware that they're contributing to this. They're, they're speaking more or less to the issue of the day, the moment right in front of them. And so it's, it's sort of a subsequent work of God and New Testament writers that kind of recognize what was put there by intention. I want to illustrate this with an old movie. How many of you remember uh, the movie Karate Kid? This is like the movie of my childhood. There were two, Hoosiers and Karate Kid, and I wore out both of those VHS tapes. So. But there's, if you remember the story of this, and if you haven't seen it yet, you know, spoiler alert, 40 years later. Um, so there's Daniel's son, right? This young guy, he's getting bullied at school, and uh, he realizes that this fellow he knows, Mr. Miyagi, knows karate and says, man, I need this. You've got to teach me. He asks, and after some arguing, finally Mr. Miyagi says, okay, I will teach you karate. So um, he comes to, you know, come on over to my house. I'll train you. And he's, he, Daniel's expecting some karate training. Instead, he gets told, paint the fence, sand the floor, wax on, wax off. Find a way to, you know, knit that into your everyday conversation today just for fun, right? <laughs> and after a few days of just going through these exercises and essentially, you know, restoring this guy's house, he gets frustrated. He's like, hey, what's the deal? I came here to learn karate from you. And then Mr. Miyagi goes into attack mode, right? And Daniel realizes in defense that all of these motions of wax on, wax off, paint the fence and whatever, in doing these things, Mr. Miyagi has created in him a strength, a muscle memory, and an instinct for karate that he didn't even know that he was getting, right? This is what typology does for us. In the Old Testament, God has knit into the story of humanity these features, these persons, these institutions that put within us a sense and a strength and an instinct for what God is doing redemptively in all of human history. So if we were to give it an example this way, Moses, when he is uh, writing about the Passover, he's writing uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and giving them to Israel. I don't think he has any idea that in writing about this event of the Passover and prescribing it as, a, as something that Israel should continue to practice, I don't think he has any idea that later on Jesus is going to come and be the Passover lamb that he will infuse this particular ceremony, this, this supper, with new meaning, which we will actually celebrate today. I don't think he knows that that's coming. Now, sometimes I, I think prophets may have a sense of sort of a near implication of what they're writing about, and then sort of a further one. And First Peter tells us about this. So now that you have your thumb in, in Romans 5, if it's still there, you might turn over briefly to First Peter 1 where he kind of shows us this. He says, concerning this salvation, this is 1 Peter 1.10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. 
And so what we're shown there is that most of the time, I think, again, like Moses or Jeremiah, they don't really know uh, that they're contributing to this fuller, bigger story. But there have been some instances, you can imagine Isaiah writing about the suffering servant, right? You can imagine that he had a sense there's something more coming after this. So there is this, in the Old Testament, there is this forward-looking that is a mystery. But in the New Testament, there is this backward look with clarity. And that's what we find. I think there's also just a really beautiful aspect of the scriptures um, where, where we see this, this unfolding mystery. Because if you think about it, you pick up Genesis, and you, if you were to start reading it, even like you were to read a novel or a bit of literature, you get to Genesis 3, and the world is already wrecked. Genesis 3. And Genesis 6, God is judging all of the world with a flood, right? That's really fast. We got there fast. And the rest of Scripture is this unfolding mystery of how God is restoring what was destroyed in Adam. Um, so again, we get these types, these foreshadows that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Now, if we don't understand this about the Scripture or see this, one of the implications of that is we start seeing the Old Testament almost like a book of, of this befuzzled God's trial and error to fix something that's broken. So it sounds something like this. God, in, enjoying in perfect community and triune community himself for eternity past, decides let's create, let's make a world, let's, let's share this love that we have in this divine community, let's create. And so they put an original pair in the garden. Whoops, failure. All right, well, let's, let's try to fix that. Let's see. Uh, how about Abraham? We'll, we'll start with a new family, different family. Okay, maybe there's just a family issue. So let's go with a new family, and we'll sort of rescue this creation through them. Whoops, fail. Fail, okay. Well, how about another guy, you know? Moses, he's a stand-up guy. Let's get Moses, and uh, tell you what, we'll, we'll rescue these people. They'll see my power at work. I'll take them into a new land. I'll give them laws. We'll set this up. I'll be, just be a little more explicit. Whoops, fail. Okay. Uh, clearly we're going to have to have a way for sinners to be made right with me. Let's institute a sacrificial system and we can kind of clean that up and then they'll get right with me. Whoops, fail. Okay, now what? Man, this is tough. Um, how about a king, an earthly king? That's what they want. They want a figure right on earth. Someone who's a little more visible, a little more tangible. Okay, let's try that. Here, king, King David. Boom. Whoops, fail. Okay, that's it. I'm tired of these people. You're going to timeout. Off to Babylon with you, 70 years. You think about what you did when you're ready to come downstairs. We'll start over with the second temple and we'll kind of rehash some things here, right? Whoops, fail. Okay, I'm running out of options. I'm going to have to send Jesus. You see, if we don't understand this properly, it just seems like God is doing cleanup on aisle seven constantly, as though he didn't have any of this in view. But that's not how the scriptures present things. Even in Revelation, Revelation 13, 8, it says that the Lamb of God was slain from the creation of the world. The gospel was God's A plan. It wasn't plan B or C or D or Q or whatever we're on here. It was plan A. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, 
You believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. And then in Ephesians 1, same thing, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God is not befuzzled, constantly trying to figure out how to clean this up. In the Old Testament, we find a steady and progressive revelation where he creates these features and a scaffolding for which Christ comes and we know him and recognize him and see his role for us because all of this was pointing to him all along. And that helps us hold the scriptures together as a whole. Even as we saw in our Galatians series a couple years ago, if you were with us, I kept making this point. The law was never meant to save. It was meant to show, to show us our need for Jesus. In the same way, these figures and features and institutions never meant to save, but to show us our need for Jesus, who is the only way by which man can be saved. Okay. Um, in the second instance where we see Paul use this idea of type, specifically Jesus as a true and better Adam, is in Romans 5, so you could go back there now, Romans 5.12. And here, um, Paul is basically outlining how sin came into the world through Adam to the human race and how in Jesus, sin and death are undone. So we'll read uh, Romans 5.12 here. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, or as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So what we're going to do is just work through this quickly in sort of three questions here. And the first is this. What was Adam's role? What, is, what was Adam's role? Genesis presents Adam again as the first man, the first uh, human of God's creation, and he is immediately given good work to do. Immediately. Uh, and I say this because there are many who I think are confused and think that work is a result of the curse. And that's not the case. In fact, good work was God's first gift to Adam. He put him in the garden, and he gave him good work to do to take care of it. And he commanded the man, you are free to eat from any of the tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So work was the first gift of God. It wasn't a result of the curse. Frustrated work. This is the result of the curse. Uh, this we understand. Let me give you a few pictures of it. Frustrated work. Uh, the plant you were cultivating developed a fungus. The fence broke. You measured wrong and get now to cut twice, right? The plow cable broke again, again and again and again. <laughs> the internet is down. The permit expired. The hydraulic hose burst, right? This is frustrated work. That's the result of the curse. But originally, Adam was instructed to do good, meaningful work to use his agency, ability, and creativity. That's what he was made to do. And then the fall comes and frustrates that. So originally, a good life was given, 
a good place was given. Good work was given. And lucky to Adam, a good woman was given. And man and wife had a good relationship with God. And God saw it was good. Right? One restriction, one consequence. And of course, that's the one thing we end up wanting to do. So how did Adam fall? That's our second question. And uh, this is interesting to me. I don't know if it will be to you, but isn't it true that Eve sinned first? Just saying. Eve, Eve sinned first, and Adam, yet Adam is the one to whom original sin is attributed. Why, why is that? Which is not the beginning of a joke. I, it's something I'm really kind of actually wondering about. I, I don't have a great answer for that, uh, or I'm not totally settled on that. I'm still working out some of my theology on this here. But what is clear from the Apostle Paul is that Adam served as our representative, or what we call federal headship. What he did, he did for all of us. In the same way, if you think about a country who decides to go into war with another country, this figurehead, whether a president or a dictator or whatever, makes the decision federally for the whole nation and declares that they're at war, whether individuals in this nation want to be or not. This federal leader acts and operates in a representative fashion for the whole. In the same way, when Adam sinned, he declared the human nature, the hu- or the human race, to be at war with God. We all went to war that day, whether we wanted to or not. And we have operated as rebels since. And so succumbing to his wife's invitation to join her in her sin, he took and he ate and he plunged the world into sin. Secondly here, or thirdly rather, what are the consequences of Adam's sin? Uh, well, there's, there's a bunch. Sin came into the world. That means that's our default setting. So we don't, we don't start off in life as innocent and lovely creatures that kind of get you know, mired along the way. We're sinners from birth. We have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin and the nature to go on and sin. Uh, You can go into the nursery right now and you can look at these cute little cherubs in there and oftentimes we like to think about these little suckers and say, well, they're innocent. They're not. They're natural born sinners. If that offends you, sorry, but that's what you need to know. We can put that right above the nursery door. <laughs> Natural born sinners. <laughs> make recruiting very difficult, I think. But. You don't have to teach a kid to sin. They got that. You have to teach them how to obey. You have to teach them how to love. But they know how to sin all on their own because they have inherited a sin nature and the guilt of Adam's sin. Also, we see shame right at the beginning. We see Adam and Eve initially run and hide, run and hide, cover. And then we see death coming into the world. Death reigned, Paul says. Can you imagine the contrast between knowing all of the goodness that you have in your good work, in your good food, your good relationship with your good wife and with God, and yet now there's this thing called death? And you brought that into the world. You brought it. We also see that then there becomes a power struggle between husband and wife. 
Uh, there's a passage, I think it's in Genesis 4, I didn't mark it down, where it talks about, but you will desire, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, which just introduces this power struggle in marriage, which if you're married, you experience this. Then work is frustrated, as we've already talked about. Birthing is painful. Women all clench their fists simultaneously. Cornelius Plantinga has called this the vandalism of shalom. Or again, this awful phrase right in the text, death reigned. A couple years ago, I was back in Boston at Cambridge, and I went to several museums, and I ran across this, uh, this piece of art. And it is the picture, actually, of Cain and his wife. And I have to just say this right now. First service, I showed this picture and forgot to edit this. I am sincerely sorry about that. I really am. I have used this before and edited it before and forgot that it needed to be freshly edited. And so we saw a little more of this woman than we meant to. And if you talk to someone from first service and they're particularly frustrated, please pass this along. I, I do apologize for that. That was a mistake. So I know what I'll be doing this next week. Um, but this picture just grabbed me when I was walking through the museum. This is a picture, not of Adam and Eve, and we typically think of the guilt-shame picture with Adam and Eve, right? This is Cain, having killed his brother. Sin isn't just in the first generation, it's passed to the kids and they experience it. And then you just look in the background, just the devastation, what was once good now is wrecked. And that picture just grabbed me. It's just, it's art, it's not perfect, there's flaws, there's things we could correct about it, but it captures something that we might not uh, recognize normally. And then to bring even more clarity, uh, we'll go to Augustine and some Latin, because again, Latin makes everything clearer, right? As I like to say. Adam, or Augustine notices about what has happened to the human nature after the fall. So before the fall, the phrase is passe non capare, which means possible not to sin. Oh, wouldn't that be great? That's the status that Adam and Eve enjoyed. It was possible for them not to sin. After the fall, it's non passe non capare, or as you might have guessed it, not possible not to sin. That's impossible for us. That's where we are because of the guilt that we've inherited and the nature that we've inherited. But what we find in God's unfolding mystery is that what was unraveled in the Old Testament is being re-knit and re-webbed in the new. What Adam wrecks, Christ comes to fix. So we go to the second part of our passage in Romans 5. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned, 
through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. You see the symmetry. You see the unraveling and you see the rewebbing and re-knitting what God is restoring. So same questions. What is Jesus' role? In, this, in the same way that Adam acted as our representative, plunging us into sin. Jesus is what we call the anti-type. He also acts as our representative, but in order to rescue us from our sin. He is, in this way, the true and better Adam. He truly represented us, but he was better because he succeeded where Adam failed. And this is why the doctrine of incarnation is really important for us, that we would understand this. That Jesus, when he becomes incarnate, when he takes on human flesh, he doesn't become half God and half man. That's a mistake. He's fully God, and to his full deity, he adds full humanity. That means that he can, as fully man, act as our representative, and as fully God, his death is of infinite worth to cover the sins of all of mankind. In what way did Christ succeed? Well, he lives a sinful life, and he dies a sacrificial death. I love how Tim Keller, in the video that I, I presented last week, sort of compared these two garden scenes, right? Jesus is the true and better Adam who succeeded in his garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, a much tougher garden. Here we have Adam in the garden committing the one sin. Jesus in the garden, though he is doing battle with the Lord and with the Father's will and his own, submits his will to the Father. One gives in to self, one gives self to serve others. He succeeds where Adam failed. And then lastly here, what are the implications of Christ's work? There is now a grace that brings justification. That is, we can be justified to the Father. I love the little moniker that says, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what Jesus' work on the cross can do for us. Or again, to go back to our Latin for clarity. Now something has changed. After conversion, we're back to passe non capare. It is possible for us not to sin because we have the help of Jesus by the Holy Spirit who empowers us for obedience, which we couldn't do beforehand. And then there's one last stage which Augustine identifies, and this is something to get excited about. It is non passe pacare, which means not possible to sin. And that's where God is taking us. That is to be with him in the eternal kingdom forever. That's where we're headed. I want to close this with the story here, of kind of how all this all works out. Um, I, had, I had a bad Thursday, bad Thursday morning. Um, I'm getting older, and I'm finding that along with that comes, one, I can't sleep through the night. I don't sleep very well. And two, I forget everything. So... 
for those who are a little older than me, is this just the way it goes? You know, is it kind of... So that's what I found. So I don't know what it was, 4 o'clock, 4.15, I'm laying in bed, can't sleep, can't sleep. What to do? Coffee Hut doesn't open until 5.30, not going to go anywhere before then. So finally I get up, I kind of get my stuff together and drive over to the Coffee Hut and get right there, right about 5.30 as they're opening the window. I reach for my wallet. Yeah. <laughs> You've been there. I didn't have it. Ah, oh, nuts. I left my wallet at home. Thankfully, I had one of those cards. And I had 10, I had 10 points on my card, you know. So I gave them my frequent flyer card, whatever you want to call it. And they said, great, here's your coffee. I went home to get uh, my wallet. So i back in the house. The dog barks. I wake everybody up. I'm sure they're irritated. I grab my wallet. Back in the truck. Drive back here. Go into my office. Get out, go to get out my laptop and realize... I left it at home. I told you, this is a bad morning. So I get back in my truck. I drive home, wake everybody up again. I get my laptop, and I come back to work. So now it's about, I don't know, it's like 6 o'clock, something like that, 6.15. And I start working for a little bit. I'm in a good flow, just dumb and happy. And then I get a text from my wife. And no, it's usually not good if I get a text early in the morning from my wife. And she says, where's the checkbook? And I, or do you have the checkbook? To which I said, no. And I should have said, I don't mean to have the checkbook. <laughs> but in fact, I had it. We need the checkbook. Ellie needs a check today for a deposit for her track uniform. So we need a check. And um, I, anyways, I didn't have it, couldn't produce it. Finally, I realized, oh, actually, I do have it. I'll come home. Then she says this, where are my keys? What did I do? I keys. I drove her car the night before, and, you know, did you check my coat pocket? Yeah. What pants were you wearing? We'll go through that whole thing. <laughs> Can't find the keys. Finally, Gus finds them in the pail where they're not supposed to be. And so Amy says, we find them, so I do a little loop out here in the parking lot and come right back. And I go inside, and I'm thinking about this, and my mind is just going to, how did this hit everybody at home? Ellie had to leave, and she didn't have a check. I can imagine there was... Some tension there. She left in a huff without what she needed. Okay, I'll go, I'll, I'll drop off the check. And I'm thinking about Amy. And I'm thinking, she's going to work without a coffee today. Because she lets me know. I didn't have enough time for to stop myself. I'm like, oh no, those poor children. <laughs> and coworkers and whatnot. She's not here at this service, so. I'm like, this is going to be a problem. And I'm thinking about the trouble that I'm in, right? I'm thinking, I better do something about this. I, I, I'll pay Ellie's thing. And I thought, I better go get a coffee for my wife. So I run down here to Serena and say, I got to go buy an apology coffee. I'll be right back. <laughs> and I did apologize. I sent her a text. I'm really sorry for frustrating your morning. To which Amy says, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I have work to do, right? <laughs> Subtext. <laughs> So I go up there, I go up to her school, and I bring in a, my apology coffee and hand it to her. She says, thank you very much. And I say, you're welcome. And I go home. Here's the question. Did, did, I, did I make everything right in this? The answer is yes and no. I mean, but this, this is how sin works, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't sin here, but I made a mistake. So I cast my little pebble in the pond here, and I created ripple effects, right? 
I can imagine the tension between Amy and Ellie and then Amy and her kids and the teachers. And, and so if you had a bad day on Thursday, it's probably my fault. It just started at the John's house and went everywhere, right? That's how sin works. It just goes to the far edges of the world. And I cast my pebble in the pond and you cast your pebble in the pond. And next thing you know, it's just writhing, right? That's sin. And even though I apologized and even though I took a coffee to her, we might have had some relational peace between us, but I was still guilty. Just, I was. I still did a wrong thing. or still guilty. And that's how it works in our spiritual lives, too. We come into this world as natural-born sinners. We add to it happily. We froth about as we each throw our pebble into the pond of our own sin. And sometimes people say, well, I'll make up for it. And so they try to do good things, and they try to repair relationships. And they might get a general peace among people on this earth, but guess what? Still guilty. And that is why we need Jesus. Because he fills up what Adam failed to do. Jesus comes as our representative. And he doesn't sweep our sin under the carpet. He takes it into himself. And he takes it to the cross. And he allows for it to be destroyed in him. And so we receive not just forgiveness and justification, but even something better than that. You know what it is? His righteousness, his righteousness is imputed to us. I'm not just a person who was forgiven. I'm a person upon whom which the Father sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That which is applied to me. That is why we need Jesus. He is the true and better Adam. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in your revelation and showing us this plan you've been orchestrating from the beginning, this story that we are, by your grace, written into. Jesus, who is slain from the foundation of the world, we who were chosen in him, rescued by him. We can't cover our sin and shame. We need Jesus to destroy it. Thank you that he did so on the cross. I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in what he, <laughs> that we would rejoice uh, in what he has done for us. And that's what it ought to sound like. We love you, Lord. Amen.